Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition, a special edition of Russellomics. There is no Pollock and Thurston, as it usually is midweek here. Uh, it's a busy week in the world of professional wrestling, and the G1 Climax is underway. Um, so we are joined today instead by MJ from MJ, who, who is not wearing currently his tinfoil hat, but he has joined us nonetheless. Hello. Uh, it's always it's always nearby. Uh, you're right. I'm not John Pollock, and um, many people say I put the G in G1. Um, sure. Yeah. Sure. Are you watching the G1? I started to watch it. I did subscribe. It okay. is the best value in wrestling. Uh, stand by that. It is nine hundred ninety nine yen. Yeah, it translates to what, like seven dollars? I think it's like seven right now. All yeah. of that tournament, and it's usually good caliber uh, matches. Um. It's the most frustrating thing to, to sign up. I think New Japan's done a terrible job with their North American customer uh, go-to-market. You just, you just need to get a, a fire stick. You need to go out and buy a fire stick or order it from Amazon. This is what I was told. Right. And you may not use a fire stick for anything else that you don't already have devices for, but you, you just buy a fire stick and then stop complaining. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but does New Japan not have some kind of content deal with uh, Roku? They have content on Roku on demand, yeah. I think it's like the access episodes on demand, I think. God forbid they had their channel or an app that you could use on Roku like everybody else, and this would be just a seamless process, and I probably would be a subscriber all year long. <laughs> well, anyway, we're not going to talk too much about uh, New Japan, I think, today, uh, but, but I did spend uh, some time uh, putting this together to look at what the what attendances were for are so far this year for companies including New Japan, NOAA, Stardom. Um, you can look at that on my Twitter if you want. Uh, I don't know that we have a lot to say about that, uh, but we will talk today about what 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 happened here i'm going to try to make these slides work um we have comcast reported earnings this morning just before the bell and they reported that peacock subscribers have nearly doubled from the prior year uh they are now up to 24 million subscribers this is u.s only so this is not global uh but 24 million subscribers who are paying so that, that's not, uh, I, I think the, the Cox and Comcast people getting it for free are no longer getting it for free. And they are hiking prices next month. But up 24 million from the prior quarter of 22 million. A year ago, they were at in Q2, 13 million. So, I mean, this, this just plays into when we hear how the WPLEs are up, you know, by double digits of percent for the given pay-per-view versus the pay-per-view of the same name the prior year. Uh, the, the, some of that is probably due to increased interest in WB product, but it's also certainly being helped by the increase in reach that Peacock has. Um, so interrupt me, MJ, if you have any thoughts on this. I'm just going to uh, keep going through. To, to something gonna, I know you do have. Oh, go, go ahead. No, no, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plug a Twitter handle that I have found to be extremely useful and also interesting over the course of the last few months. Uh, they've probably been at this a long time. I don't know this person, but the TV Grim Reaper. Yes. Um, yeah, I'm sure you're quite familiar with him uh, mm-hmm. or her. I do find it interesting that Comcast has an available reach of all these subscribers that could be otherwise eligible for free subscriptions. Um, you know, there's a note here at Comcast at 30 million customers that were eligible for free Peacock premium, looking at what that convert is into how many are actually paying. Um, you get a sense of what their conversion rate is. Uh, and I don't know what the time horizon on that, uh, necessarily covers, but 
I, they are, I don't believe they're up to 30 million paid subscribers yet, are they? No, 24 is what they reported 24. this morning. So they have the reach to get to 30 million. How many they'll be able to get into as far as paid, particularly as prices go up, unique and interesting to me. The other thing is that I think people will often conflate um, growth with actual profitability because while they are two times double the amount, uh, as many subscribers as they were a year ago, they lost $200 million more than they did one year they, ago in uh, the current quarter on Peacock. They, uh, so I've been searching through the IR site for Comcast this morning, and they, they always publish this paragraph about adjusted EBITDA, um, where they get around to saying media results in the second quarter include $820 million of revenue. That's almost a billion dollars in revenue that Peacock is generating, and an adjusted EBITDA loss of $651 million related to Peacock. Um, that is compared to $444 million of revenue and adjusted EBITDA loss of $467 million uh, in the prior period, which is Q2 of last year. Anyway, I, I went through all of these paragraphs that they have ever published about Peacock, and I counted them all up and said, how much money has been lost to Peacock so far? And it comes out to $6.3 billion that yeah. they lost in Whatever adjusted EBITDA is some form of profit. I don't know what their what the adjustment is, but I shouldn't laugh, um, and I don't laugh because it's it's not funny. It's just kind of like losing six billion dollars this fast. Um, you hear about the different um, issues brought up in the writer strike. Now the actor strike. You'll hear about. I, I was here in November. I think we talked in depth about. The sports bubble may be popping, maybe not popping. But again, we'll talk about justifying the increases in rights fees, whether it's for wrestling or anything else. And you just look at $6 billion burned here. Um, for, for 24 million subscribers, growth from a year ago at accelerated losses. Um, and, and it does lead the question of like, where is this going and what is the way out of this? Is these, are these all sunk costs so that one day down the road, growth is so overwhelming that we're able to see such great realized returns on this investment, $6.3 billion through what amounts to being two and a half years of, of an effort here. Um, and I'm kind of shortening that window because obviously the ramp up period in the very, very first quarter or two with nascent um, you know, delivery to, to customers. And this, I think, I think they've reported in the past how much they expect to lose. So it's not like this is unexpected, mm-hmm. but um, the losses have not gotten smaller, right? And I, I, we're looking at cumulative, but as you can tell from the, the trajectory of the slope here, this is a, a pretty negative slope. It's not like these losses have stopped. And as we just read the paragraph, they lost money in, in this quarter too. So there, there hasn't been a profitable quarter since the since they started reporting on this in 2020 uh, Q1. Uh, last quarter, it was $704 million. Quarter before that, it was almost a billion. Uh, and this quarter, lost $651 million. Um, so, I mean, I, I looked at these numbers and all I could think about was, well, there's, gonna, there's definitely going to have to be consolidation eventually. And Peacock is going to be one of the pieces that gets scooped up or merged into something else. Consolidation and a, 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 I, I think a realization that we cannot just spend forever on content and inflate the cost of content, no matter how valuable it may appeal to appear to be. Let's play. Let's have a conversation. Let's let's play a hypothetical out here. Uh, I'm a Comcast investor. You are overseeing NBCU, and you want to bring forth a 1.5, 1.7x increase on a property right now that probably is carrying a good weight of Peacock, right? Yes. What, what what property do you have in mind? 
Uh, the let's call it a uh, coterminous deal related to the Raw, NXT, and WWE PLE events that are probably carrying a good amount of water for Peacock as a whole. Okay, and and, and for no reason at all, do you you hold any options right now or any other positions in in World Wrestling Entertainment, which is traded on the New York? I'll disclose everything. I'm an open book as far as my. I hold no shares in WWE. I think I have one call option that's pretty much dead in the water for like 120 by August, in case the 1.7 number comes out. But it's currently trading 105. Yeah, yeah. I, I go in and out of it based on what the stock looks like. It's doing what the volume looks like. I've followed this a long time, so I play it. I don't invest in it right now because of the pending merger. I do hold options in Endeavor, though, because I think Endeavor has some upside to it. We can get into that in another conversation. Okay. But did I disclose enough for you, Brandon? Well, that, thank you. Okay. The listeners appreciate it. So, Brandon, you come to me as the head of NBCU to the board, and you say, we are going to make this proposal. We need to retain WWE. We need to keep the rights. PLEs are doing great on our network on Peacock, and frankly, we would lose subscribers without it, right? Mm-hmm. And if I'm an investor, I say, look, you've lost $6.3 billion. Enough already. We're not letting you pay more for something to keep losing more, right? You've shown no ability to turn this curve in the first few years. Um, do you think the property you have today is the thing that's going to make this profitable later, right? You're telling me it's carrying the water right now, but you're down $6 billion on this since you started. Mm-hmm. That conversation is not a fake conversation, like that's the justification that ones have to come up with to decide to invest further in properties, especially around something that's lost this much money with no real sign of turning it around. Yeah, and the, the vibes that I get is like it's going to get a WE is going to get a raise. If if not, this stock price even at one hundred five today, which is a little bit down from what it's been, doesn't yeah. make any sense, right? But I think it does make sense. So I don't know. Is is the strategy just going to be well? Let's spend less on scripted content and other forms of unscripted content like documentaries or something like that, that they're spending a lot on and spend on the stuff that really is driving subs. Yeah. I, I think you look, it's on, it's no doubt it's driving subs. I think the question is how, what, what is fair value for it and what is NBC willing to pay or can pay, right? Like, can they get quote unquote blood from a stone, right? Do you start to squeeze on saying, this is all we're going to go up to. Uh, we're not going higher. We need X, we need, we need NXT thrown in. Right. And we're going to use NXT across the different networks. We need a, you know, they need favorable terms on the PLE, but hey, WWE, look, like this works out for you too. This is more money than you ever thought you'd make on this. There's no other better partner out there. Let's just come to terms and work together and do something that's a little bit more favorable, maybe to the expense side for Peacock. I think those, I think that's probably where it is in negotiations right now, if I had to speculate, because no deal has been announced. And I would think that just throwing a big number out there to retain it would be a difficult thing to do in this environment where Peacock is such a leader, a loss leader right now for NBC. It's not like the cable linear business is getting any better either. Yeah, and Comcast reports cable TV subscribers too, which were, I, I glanced at it, down about 5 or 6% from the prior year. Um, I was thinking, like, does this have, even if it's you know continuing to lose money, is there just like, a sufficient M&A value here for when consolidation by consolidation, I mean like a future where, you know, NBCU maybe entirely has to be merged or acquired by one of the bigger tech companies or, or, or just, you know, Paramount and NBCU and WBD is another one in, in the conversation. Is there just enough value in, in that event when it, when it finally does get merged together that, you know, all these losses here will all get washed away. 
I, will the losses get washed? Well, we're seeing Warner Brothers try to wash away losses through. They, they report us a slight profit on on streaming. They do, and they've taken great advantage of canceling shows and uh, just completely scratching projects that otherwise would um, show up as expenses that they're able to kind of wash away, for lack of a better term. Um, yeah, I, I, this leads me to a bigger, broader topic, which is maybe the devaluing of the medium itself, and I think plays into some of the strikes that we're seeing take place in the space and maybe what people are fighting for. But like in theory, we used to have cable. And consolidation, as you explain it, would be a lot like cable, except at lower price points than cable was when cable started to really erode. So did we not just devalue the medium of what it is to be television? Or, you know, direct-to-consumer has a connotation of being somewhat more efficient or cheaper. So naturally, it's going to be at a better price point to get people to adopt that behavior. So they sign up for Peacock, or they sign up for some combination of Max, Peacock, and Paramount Plus as a consolidated bundle. Are they pro- They're probably not going to pay what they were paying for cable. I can't imagine at the end of this, we all wind up back paying what we paid for cable with limited ad-supported, otherwise subscriber bases that are paying what? $200 for a bundle? I, I think for for cable TV, I think it's like, I did get quoted for, because I was, I was looking at like upgrading my internet. So I was on, on one of those phone calls with customer service for my local cable company and they quoted me on like what they wanted to sell it to me for. Um, I think it was like 75 or 100 or something like that. It, it, just for the, the TV part, the internet would have been like another $60 or something. Uh, per, do, you, per month. do you know what networks that came for that with the TV? Do you know what packages that included? Was that baseline or was that? I think uh, like a standard cable package. When I lived in Manhattan, they had me pay for the sports package so I get the Golf Channel, which is relevant because Golf Channel is owned by Comcast. I love golf. One of the only channels I actually care about to have cable. I had to pay up for that. And, and in Manhattan, it's Spectrum, which is charter. Uh, it was RCN. Um, okay. I don't know who. Else. I know my parents have Comcast and pay for all the different extra channels. I don't know why Showtime, HBO, like they're they're just very old like that. They have not figured out there's better ways to do this. Again, there's upcharges to all of that. So I'm curious, like, what does a bundle look like in streaming? Because it would include all those things you're currently playing upcharges for in cable, except you're not really going to be paying an upcharge. Is that the idea? I, my guess is that there'll, there'll be maybe eventually a couple bundles. Like maybe there's yeah. a Disney type bundle with Disney Plus and a Hulu and ESPN. Well, there kind of is, mm-hmm. and maybe there's something else that's a part of that. And maybe there's some other bundle with with the the remainder or something like that. Um, I guess like one thing I don't think we've ever talked about on WrestleNomics is like what makes why is cable such a better business, such a more profitable business than streaming is. Obviously, streaming the price points are very low to entice consumers to get in there and get used to being a subscriber to whatever streaming service and then slowly boil the frog on them. But like, why, why is cable even despite that, you know, even if we level those subscriber fees up, they're still, they're still losing a lot of money here. And so it's going to take a lot of uh, incremental revenue to make these losses back. And I think a lot of it has to do with what, just, just the fact that people were paying for channels that they didn't watch in the past and channels what, they didn't watch. Yeah, and I think part of what's happening with obviously happening with streaming is that there's all this flexibility. Like you can you can cancel your Netflix subscription at any time, whereas cable, uh, you may even have a long term commitment that's part of your, your your cable agreement, and it's you know it's a whole ordeal to cancel cable and to actually cut the cord. 
Yeah, it was one of the greatest mousetraps ever conceived. The idea of this this cable bundle and you sell advertising on top of it as a revenue stream for the the cable companies or the broadcast the network companies. Um, they're going to get the transmission rights. Um, obviously, they all went into the wireless and that business as well. Um, unsuccessfully in some cases, okay. At others, I don't think that it's been a success for any of them too too uh, too great. Uh, Famously, the Warner Brothers and AT and T debacle, uh, but it was a great it was a great flywheel to basically have consumers be locked into paying something. It was a great part of house formation, right? The idea that everyone you know you, you catch generations as they move into homes, you have to sign up for cable, and now you're probably never getting rid of it until a point has come where there was something that disrupted it, and you're you know you talked about lowering the price point to to get the consumer to adopt behavior. That was Netflix's game. And Netflix won that game. All the incumbents, all the legacy brand, all the legacy companies that had this older model of cable that had done so well with it, trying to catch up to the the, the disruptor, as Tony Khan would call it, what a challenger brand. Um, and they tried with Hulu. And they've tried with Hulu. And Hulu has been very successful for many years, even predating any of these companies having streaming. Because for people who don't know, Hulu was originally owned by three, right, right by NBCU, by Disney and by Fox. Fox and is now Fox. out. Fox is out with the combination of assets between Fox and Disney when that took place. I think around 2018 it was. Um, yeah. But yeah, you're just watching these incumbent these incumbent legacy companies trying to adopt a model that they frankly can't subsidize their way out of. Um, and others are there, right? Amazon's doing something. Um, there's a there's a bunch of ways to get content direct to consumer now, whether it be YouTube, even we could talk about that, that are other challengers, not just Netflix. So now they've entered the marketplace where there's all these other alternatives and options, and it is ingrained in consumer behavior. Uh, the price increases scare me because I don't know where that goes, right? And not just because I don't want to pay an extra dollar, but like on a whole, ESPN Plus has had to raise prices. Peacock's going to raise prices. They're all going to be raising prices. It's an inflationary thing for the cust- for the consumer, um, and it impacts so many millions of homes that it you know it gives me pause for concern on whether inflation is done or how they measure inflation is relevant to the way American consumers, North American consumers, spend money. But um, yeah, it goes off into a bunch of conversations. And just thinking about wrestling or even I guess any sports league, I guess the nightmare here is that just reach will never be what it once was, where you could be on a major let's say broadcast network or cable network and be in the vast majority of, of us homes. Like if, if we never get past, you know, 70 million homes or something like that, which is, um, I think, you know, major cables in the low seventies, 70 millions right now, Netflix is just under that probably. So, I mean, are we, which is out of 120 million homes. So are we just at a point where the reach will never be so universal again? And, and what are the consequences of that for, wrestling especially which is, does not have this massively dominant space like the nfl does or even the nba or, or other major sports leagues and what downstream effects does that have on the rest of their business um and their popularity uh, i can't ever see reach getting back to what it was at the peak um at least not uniform different methods of reach different distribution channels different ways people access it yes but you know i think the super bowl will probably be watched by more people than ever this year they will watch it in different means. Um, and even there, it'll be bifurcated between people who did so streaming or over the top or watched it live on television or however people consume things. I think there's a bigger 
question mark and goes back to the November discussion about sports rights and a potential bubble is if the reach is smaller than ever, how can the dollars be worth more than ever? At some point, there's an imbalance there and it no longer works economically. And I think that for the sports leagues, as they see competition with outside money now pouring in, um, there could be some real waves and real disruption there, particularly with with player unions who are used to seeing an X amount of growth in their wages or in their the demand for their talents um, that the sports leagues, frankly, need the TV rights to keep up with. And so, I think that's, so that's where this, I see this narrowing. So I think that's a good setup for what I want to talk about next because um, Michael Nathanson was on with Richard Deitch this week. Did you listen, listen to that? Yes, it's part of my preparation, already. of course. Okay. Okay. Because I put this, I don't know if you even saw that I put this in, in the list of things, but um, he said, he did bring up WB at one point. He said, mm-hmm. um, what I've come to believe in doing the work is I think streaming services have to bring in sports more and more because, again, the recurring viewership, the churn reduction during the NBA season, the NFL season is very valuable. They spend all this money, they, they the streaming services, spend all this money on original content. That's literally a roll of the dice. It not it better to basically t- stop making 10 episodes at $20 million an episode and go buy a year or so of rights because, you know, you get recurring viewership. The rights have to be in the top upper funnel of quality. It has to be NBA, NFL, baseball's probably too cut at this point. Not sure how hockey works, college sports works. And I think the strong will survive and use streaming as a way to offset weakness and linear. I really wonder about in the middle and the bottom, the question will be, what a UFC, WWE, how do they do? They're a 52-week season. They have premium events. They're good for streaming. That's going to be interesting. That, that That's going to kind of be the canary in the coal mine. What happens to WWE and UFC in the next few years. So he's almost sounding, you know, like I, I don't even know if he's even aware of the timing as he says this about what, when their their deals oh, he, are coming. Yeah. He's because, definitely not unaware of the timing <laughs> because they're WWE's negotiating right now, and UFC will be coming soon. Um, so he, he sounds like he they would not be optimistic that they're going to get a. They're they're really uncertain about how big of an increase yeah. they're going to get in media rights. I am of the opinion or belief that right now they're in a quiet WWE that is in a quiet period. So Nick's not out there talking up the rights because they have earnings coming up. Uh, I could be wrong about the quiet period. So it leaves room for somebody um, like a Provenace to come in and and start to throw water on it um, and others. Uh, it is the canary in the coal mine. It is a very interesting, uh, we've talked about this before. You've covered it quite a bit. Like the PLEs and the way the UFC model works with ESPN plus is being subscribed to ESPN plus to then buy the pay-per-views is a real, real diamond in the rough for, in my opinion, for these streamers. Why? Because one, it fights churn. There's an event every month Two, you're able to upsell. Uh, the day that news broke that ES, that, that, uh, WWE and UFC would be merging under this new NUCO, I was convinced we will see in the next 12 months, we will be paying for PLEs because that is a value add to Peacock to invest in those rights. Another way to derive further revenue, uh, it will not be great for the consumers, but where else are we going to go to watch these? Um, and they're going to make that bet. It, the canary in the coal mine, it, it's a great way to say it because, if this model works, what do others try to do with it? Could you see the NBA trying to sell their mid-year tournament in a year or two as an additional package to a streamer or to be viewed for the hardcore, most hardcore NBA fans? They announced this mid-year tournament. Um, You're talking about NBA as a pay-per-view, like an a la carte purchase. Um, 
talking about any form of these sports where you can create event around it that you can then sell as being something premium or something more than what is the average run of the mill regular season. Because that's something um, that, that that's been pretty unique to combat sports, right? Yes, yes. Although we have seen it, I talk about golf, the match. You've asked me about the match before. That was certainly something that was a made for TV product to sell to TV partners. I don't think it carries the weight to be a pay per view, but that very first Tiger Woods, Phil Mickelson, you know, could be, uh, could have been, and and there can be other examples of this throughout. Um, but it's also maybe that the streamers are able to play with pricing around these events, like a Super Bowl or like the playoffs where, hey, like this is peak season for us and we are going to charge up. I don't know. Like this all has to unfold. I don't know the leagues would be fans of this, but they're going to have to be some giving and taking here to make the economics work because otherwise there are there is a middle ground of sports that will fall by the wayside in terms of the rights fees. Yeah, I mean, I think that we... I think W is still going to get an increase. I think AEW will get a bigger increase because they have a smaller base to begin with. And by percentage, I mean. So, but I think when it comes to the other sports, we may have seen, when it comes to that, when it comes to the, the big NFL, NBA, they may continue to get big increases over the, the decades. But I think when it comes to everything below that, we may be seeing the end of these this exponential growth in in TV rights. There, um, there was a big thing last year with baseball where I think Aaron Judge was chasing the AL home run record or some sorts, and games yeah. were exclusive to Apple. So in a weird way, what I'm describing is that you had to pay up to see the Apple games. I don't know that those made them exclusive or premium for any other reason than they just happen to be licensed to Apple, but you can only watch them through paying to get Apple TV. So, well, in a sense a that that's true that. with TNT. Like if you if the, if the game yes. is on TBS, I guess I should say if it's baseball, you know, or if it was on FS1, you you don't get that for free anywhere. The golf example, I had to pay up to get the sports package to watch the golf. Show. And so we we've seen it creep into behavior, some of the delivery of this content already by some of these networks. I don't know what it looks like at scale, but. There's definitely a give and a take to providing more value to the streamer to invest in your product to then be able to upsell. Okay. Well, well speaking of uh, how W may be doing their TV rights and renegotiations, they had a, a pretty good showing on FS1 uh, this past Friday where they did 1.23 million viewers on FS1 as they were bumped for the Women's World Soccer game uh, that was on Fox instead. Um, and that is the best SmackDown that has ever uh, aired on, on FS1 in the nine times now that they've been preempted. Uh, the next nearest one was way back in December 2020 when they, when they did 1.033 million. Again, this one doing 1.23 million viewers. So I would have to think that they're pretty happy about that, uh, that they're able to show, I don't know what that is as a percentage. You know, they've been doing about as, as well as 2.5 million viewers lately, about or 2.4. Um, yeah, so well, that is about 2.5. It's about 50. It's, yeah. Yeah. So I would I would think the conversion here in compared to prior years is is higher, but uh, it's 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 a talking point when they've talked about you know how well they did on with Raw on, on Sci Fi where they did you know obviously lower numbers, but they they transferred a lot of their audience to a different network, which you know I think is an argument to say hey look if we have to leave our current home we'll transfer those viewers no problem. And we just right off the bat get out of the way that yes, Fox has more is has more reach, is in more homes than FS one. I think FS one is slightly behind the T nets and maybe USA, but not by a considerable but amount. Up there. Yeah. Um yeah, and 
do you think, well, first of all, I noticed in that chart, if you want to bring it back up, the dates, uh, we did not have a summer preemption prior years. You make anything of that? True. Yeah. I mean, now, not, granted, not we, really. know why, I mean, we know why it was preemptive. difference. We know why it was preempted was for the U.S. women's uh, national team, World Cup, I believe. That's um, what was on Fox. Yep. USA versus Vietnam. I don't know if there were other like instances of this, whether it be with the men's World Cup or the women's World Cup in years prior to know. These are all the, baseball games, I believe. Might, I think there's a college football bowl game that, that was happening in December, too. Right. I think that's what was happening on December 31st last year. But for the most part, this has been, I think the December has been a college football, maybe like the Pac 12 championship or something. And then the October were playoff baseball games. So WWE would be happy with the 1.2. It was replaced on Fox by something that did about 9 million total viewers. If I was reading World that World Cup did about two and a half. The or Women's three, World three Cup? Point, I'll look it up. Nine was something I thought I had read, but could be far it's off. Definitely it was definitely not nine. It was definitely not nine, but it, okay. was, it was a lot more highly Please viewed than what SmackDown does. That. Keep me honest on that, but it was highly more highly viewed than SmackDown does, so Fox takes a gamble. They say we're going to bump SmackDown, which has been red hot lately, doing the best numbers it's done for us in years. We're going to put on women's soccer. Big game. Does well. It did 5.3 million viewers, and it was the most watched in the demo. It was the most watched telecast all of last week. So not nine, five, but certainly not two either. Um, So somewhere in the middle. But does Fox look at this and say, hey, we could put other sports on and beat what we get on Friday nights with SmackDown, and we could shelve. What would that sport be, though? Like they're not going to get in. They're not going to bid on NBA. Um, for sure. I not think so. A, not even a I, I, I game on Friday. I, I think there's been questions about that. I mean, this is something that Lightshed was talking about in in the context of the the one conference that Lachlan Murdoch was at, and he and he was he did, he did bring up or was asked about WWE, and they said, well, it depends on what happens with other sports rights. And I think there was some follow up there where, like, he made clear, no, they're not going to go after the NBA. Yeah, they they certainly have college college sports, and could they leverage that at all during the college they have baseball? Seasons? Baseball, which they've used on the weekends, which I don't know does better necessarily in the Friday night, but SmackDown, but SmackDown's underperformed on Fox. I guess what I'm, what, what everyone was so quick to point out how well it did on FS1, biggest rating on FS1 to date. And I looked at it and said, okay, it's under the raw rating and Fox did something much better with its replacement. Wouldn't that give me pause for concern to say, Oh, like how good footing is WWE on with Fox in terms of getting a renewal, in terms of getting an increase, because if they go to FS1, that's not going to be for an increase in in value. <clears throat> it's likely not going to be as beneficial with the lack of reach, um, especially over the next five years. So, you know, 1.2 is a good number. The numbers for SmackDown have been ter- terrific lately. Part of the the, the big you know uptrend and the, the good story, what's coming out with the company and the content. But if you move it around, do you think it does 1.2? Do you think it does closer to 1 or 1.5 if it's there for the next three weeks, right? Because there's this idea that people get in the habit of, well, we know where to go watch it, right? You move it for one week, people don't go follow it. A month later, from if it was on for the next four weeks, a month later, is it closer to 1.5 or 1 million viewers? Closer to 1.5. And I mean, you can kind of see that in, in the quarter hours that um, there's clearly some, there's some, some activity in the quarter hours which are on the Patreon that you can see where, you know, 
quarter hour one, and this is ha- this happened the last time they were on FS1, and I saw the quarter hours. They that quarter hour two had this you know unusually high growth. So clearly, people were realizing, oh, I maybe I tuned into Fox or like I, SmackDown's not here, and they had to look in the guide or whatever it was, and they figured out where SmackDown was. Um, so so I think it, tracks, it would definitely be higher. So higher, and we could say that confidently based on quarter hour numbers. Do you think it tracks closer to 2 million or the 1.5? Like, where do you think it falls if it's on cable regularly? Um, I don't know. That, that's like one of the real. Does it beat Raw? Because if it doesn't beat Raw and it's an hour less of content than Raw, it would not warrant the same economics it gets today. I mean, SmackDown at this point, as we speak today, is clearly hotter than Raw. And, in, and SmackDown clearly has. The stronger network, you know, maybe you look at like a year ago or a year and a half ago when Raw and SmackDown, in terms of just fan interest, independent of their time slot and network, were more similar. SmackDown was still outdoing Raw, at least in total viewership, and I think most of the time in the demo. The real mysterious thing to me about TV viewership is I feel like there's there's just this raw base of viewers who are not like hardcore wrestling fans who just sort of and you know just naturally tune into these these networks at, at this given time and that seems to enhance and and, and affect the, the viewership in a significant way so and then i guess the point is there's a, a big you know a big effect there when it comes to fox and there would be less of that with FS, fs1 fs1 versus usa my gut says usa is going to going to be stronger in, in terms of just you know giving them that this natural viewership um so then it starts to matter where the content is, not as much as what the content is drawing. Not that it doesn't matter, but it's where the content is is going to inflate those numbers one way or the other. I don't want to – this will sound conspiratorial or sound anti-WWE, and it is not. But part of me wonders how much we've inflated the success of SmackDown because there are some kind of trend out there in which people are, like you're describing, watching Fox – and more frequently or throwing it on more frequently. Maybe it's because the product's such not a turnoff now that they're willing to have it on in the background. They're throw it on more regularly. Right. And then look, look at the year of year charts that I, that I yeah, make every yeah. day. I mean, SmackDown versus SmackDown a year ago is way up. And in way the demo, up. it's up like 33%. Way up. So again, not discrediting the fact that it's a hot product. Content's way better. Bloodline storyline has resonated. Roman is a draw acknowledged. Is it inflated at all in our minds? Inflated say, in what way, though? Like, what, what I'm comparing it to in, itself. Inflated in that if you moved it to FS1, then you have the question of does it be does it perform as well as RAW? It might not perform as well as RAW because of the the time slot and the network. My sense is certain. I mean, maybe YouTube videos are are a cleaner look at this, but like my sense is certainly that that SmackDown is hotter with fans. I don't mean inflated by numbers, inflated by how much we're over-indexing how well it's been doing beyond just macro forces that suggest it's on Fox. Like if you, if it moves to another station and it does not beat the Monday show, it's hard to say that the SmackDown is doing as well as we've made it out to be over the last several months or quarters where the trend has been tremendous. So, so, so what are you asking? I mean, like, I'm not asking. I'm speculating that we've over-indexed how well SmackDown is doing because the the numbers are much better. Whereas if you just moved it to a cable station and made it all things equal with Raw, it wouldn't even beat Raw. I guess it, it, the, the the scenario is it has to be on Monday and on USA Network, but not not against no, Raw. 
Friday night on cable, what does it do? Does Friday's it a disadvantage wrong? versus Monday, yeah, though. Yeah, yeah. So, but again, so that's it's part of it. It's just okay. So people watch Friday on Fox. They don't watch Friday on cable. People are not traveling to cable to go. Again, this is a hypothetical because it's not on cable regularly. There's not enough data points. But for all the praise we've given it for doing so well compared to itself, there are some influences there that help it, such as being on Fox, um, such as being in a zeitgeist the way that maybe Raw isn't because it's not advertised during football or advertised during baseball. I don't know. But that's more of Fox contributing the value than WWE earning that from all the great content that while it's been better, I just question, has it been over indexed at all because there are other forces really driving this growth? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's Fox that definitely helps it versus USA and, but there's Friday that would diminish it versus any other weeknight, I guess. Right. So um, it, it ways to pull at the data to try to, you can't extrapolate a full story because we don't have enough data points on FS1, but if a cable, com- if a com- if Fox is looking to re up their deal, but move it to FS1, it, then it's a reason to pull these threads to, to kind of think through what would it do on FS1? What would that value be? Would it be as significant a rights deal as it's got currently with Fox when it does less numbers than the Monday show in the less yeah. hour of content, right? So it's just pulling on threads. So I, I think this is a long line to something else I wanted to talk about here where we've got NXT is, is way up to particularly in the demo. Um, I was just looking. So SmackDown, as I said, in this quarter, in the quarter today versus the last quarter, Q3, uh, SmackDown is currently up in the demo, 34%. NXT is up 23%. Again, that's in the demo. Actually, in total viewership, uh, NXT is flat, but um, but up in the demo. Um, and so uh, part of what I wanted to do, do today, when we've already filled up nearly 40 minutes, but I wanted to have an exercise in um, reviewing some of the, the DMs you've sent me, which uh, people don't know. We just covered it. Yeah, so maybe we already talked about this, but I, I, I'm sent uh, DMs on Twitter uh, and, and even even text messages uh, throughout the day by uh, MJ from NJ, who's uh, just, just giving me a, a running stream of consciousness about his thoughts of, of the business world and other things. Um, it's like my whiteboard. I go yeah. back and I read them and I learn from them. I see where I was wrong, where I might have been right. So the things is, that you have to add that helped me shape my thinking. This is something that you said the other day. Can't believe the best uh, on FS1 narrative is the winner here. So pumpish. Alternative <laughs> spin is SmackDown inflated. And is it inflating our opinion of Smack? I guess we just talked about that. Yeah, and NXT that should get inked for big bucks and be staple programming somewhere replacing scripted union work. Maybe a package deal with Raw. Yeah. Uh, and currently, well, it is not a package deal currently with Raw. I was going to say that what it is, but it's not. Uh, it's definitely two different deals. And the NXT deal is expiring late September, early October this year. So we make them coterminous. Yeah. I mean, uh, so what, why should it get, do you believe that NXT is really going to continue to deliver this kind of rating, though, for years to come? Uh, or is it just, you know, you've got a, a TV deal to renegotiate here, so you're loading it up with main roster people to help the ratings out. And it is helping the ratings out for sure. Uh, and, and there is a a general improvement in NXT's ratings before this, not to the degree that we're seeing right now in recent weeks, but there has been a general improvement in, in NXT ratings, but it's really been boosted by uh, people like Finn Balor and... Uh, I don't know about Baron Corbin, but Finn Balor and and, and the Dirty Don, the the draw uh, coming over. So 
you've been in a wrestling ring. You've trained, uh, I would call them breakout superstars that now appear on national TV quite regularly, do dance moves. Um, you also probably trained them how to be a great wrestler. I don't um, teach them how to dance, though. We're talking about Daniel Garcia, I guess. Yeah. I, never ta- uh, I, don't, I don't think I ever taught him how to dance. I don't have anything to teach in that regard. Is it a fair statement for me as a fan, not as a wrestler or anyone that's ever tried, to say there's a great benefit to newer talent getting in the ring with veteran talent that can help them learn how to perform? Their, Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And is it not a better um, – would it not be beneficial to them to be on TV with those characters who know how to handle certain situations on a live TV, whether it be a smaller crowd still – Right, I think there's a great benefit to these talents going to NXT. And if I think about what NXT became at its peak peak, there's a bunch of people that probably didn't need that training that were really, really good that came in from the outside. Now, well, then 2.0 comes and they basically scrap the whole thing. They say, we're starting with like people that don't know the, the bare minimum. Maybe not literally, but conceptually. You see where I'm at. And they're rebuilding 2.0 into something that really works or resonates in terms of developing characters for their system developing talent for their system because there was just a it was a lopsided fit before you had talent that were coming in like diy or like samoa joe that really didn't need to go through a system but maybe not the right fit for wwe's mentality now you're seeing their argument at the time is they were building an alternative brand to right sell live events and saturday pay-per-view weekends and now you're seeing NXT implement a strategy where they've taken some real um, green talent, some who have never wrestled before, and trying to develop them. And as they get developed, they're interacting with more experienced talent that could help shape them a bit and get them ready for prime time. And I think that's worked with stars at NXT that are either on their way to having success on the main roster or probably can't miss success on the main roster. Someone like Carmelo Hayes. But um, we've seen the Australian that came out with John Cena. Uh, Grayson Waller. Grayson Waller. Sorry. Um, he is generic, but he's doing well. Uh, <laughs> he, he's so generic. I couldn't remember his name, but I remembered what he was involved in. Cause I thought he did well. Uh, anyway, I believe this is a recipe that is sustainable. I believe is a recipe recipe that helps foster NXT's continued growth and the talent's growth. And it reminds me a lot of 2007. So it should be permanent. I think it's going to continue. I don't think it's a trend that's done to pop ratings for a few weeks. I think it's something that can be leaned into and actually beneficial for a lot of people. Also gets Baron Corbin off main, main roster TV for a little while, refreshes them. We've seen great success with AEW cycling talent out, almost these mini excursions. I think there's something um, to you, you don't think that the timing of all of these main roster talents appearing on NXT has nothing to do with the timing of the, of the, oh, the NXT I, TV deal being renegotiated? I absolutely think it has a lot to do with that. But I think it's sustainable, and I think there's reasons to suggest that it would be beneficial going forward, which means if it's sustainable, what you're showing the, the networks now is, hey, this is what we plan to do with this brand. Look, the minute we do this, ratings go up. We're going to keep doing this. Pay us more for this brand. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, so it works in a lot of different ways right there. And for me, that reminds me a lot of SmackDown when they moved SmackDown to go live on Tuesdays and they put Ronda on SmackDown. And then it was like, hey, Fox, look what we have here in Fox bit. And in this case, they're loading up NXT. And I think that as part of a package deal with Raw to justify what we were talking about earlier, justifying the increase in cost for the networks, you're going to see this become a much more valuable property that is probably pushed even more heavily. Um, they talk about it on main roster now. 
They used to never acknowledge NXT. Now they got Dom wearing the NXT North American title on Raw. So to me, this is not going away. This is actually a good thing. It's good for NXT and it's good for value of that TV property. Particularly if you're trying to justify if you're NBC, like, why are we going to give them so much more money? Well, we're getting this additional stuff, and this is going to be even better than it was before. Let's make it coterminous, put it all together in one bundle. Here's your 1.7 increase or whatever it might be. Right, And and just to illustrate why NXT may be more valuable, if this is sustainable, um, is that it's now ranking highly among all the other shows on its given day. And if I just share this, this is from the big spreadsheet that subscribers have access to. They they are now they are now at a median rank. Uh, we don't know what the most recent episode did, but but this is through you know Q three is just the month of July, so this is I think three episodes. They they're at they're ranking number two. So if that continues, they they were at fourteen in the prior quarter, and you can see way back they've been in in the thirties and forties uh, at the lowest. And so. and I will. I'll throw this in because it's part of the DM I put to you. Um, something happened with the latest strikes. The I'm calling it union work, but with scripted television, it's things that the writers are contributing to. It's things actors and actors are acting. And I'm, I'd like to see it resolved in a way that benefits everybody. But I think one thing these networks may be starting to understand is that there's a bit of um, a risk on being totally leveraged or depending on such types of shows we've this is now in my i'll call it mid-adulthood like the second strike um that will be disruptive to the fall slates they will be disruptive to advertising flow of dollars they will be disruptive to the streaming which we've already talked about losing lots of money like at some level these networks are like can we continue to rely on all of these forms of content or do we have to go elsewhere to find less risky content and we talk about wwe being less risky in the sense it's not going off air it didn't during a pandemic they're not going to be affected by the union strikes that all of a sudden starts to index a little bit more as to like, hey, if we're in business with WWE and we can use NXT and bounce that around our slate, or we can put Raw on NBC to cover up some holes, like there's some value to that for the networks because they're not dependent on an area of content that um, you know is currently on strike and also over time has been disrupted by such working strikes. I, I guess this it's not as big of a deal as it might have been a few years, you know, several years ago where, I mean, what, what's the content that they're competing for slots with? It's it's still some scripted entertainment, mm-hmm. um, but it's largely, you know, what, what works on live TV is sports news. There's a lot of unscripted, you know, shows because they're, they're less expensive to run. Um, We're yeah. around the same age, though. You remember that boom of unscripted, all the reality shows, all the game shows. It was during the last strike where that all of a sudden flooded the networks and they've never left. American yeah, Idol. What, what was that? 2008 or so? It was around the recession. I want to say it was around 2007, 8, 9, maybe. I get the dates wrong on that, but it was pre streaming being a thing. It was maybe when Netflix was first starting to come of age. November 07 to February 08. Yeah. And it was probably right around when Netflix was starting to do their own shows or just before. Yeah. Um, I think Netflix. I mean, <laughs> first time that I remember having streaming video from Netflix was like 2010 or nine or something like that. And anyway, um, you pointed out this, uh, I don't know if you pointed out this variety article, but you pointed out this story to me that, um, 
The headline is here from Variety. YouTube Q2 ad sales rise 4%. Alphabet handily top earnings estimates. YouTube's second quarter 2023 ad sales had a modest year-over-year uptick, rising 4.4% to $7.67 billion, which is a reversal after three consecutive quarters of decline at the video platform. Alphabet, the parent company of Google, and YouTube came in above analyst earnings expectations with a top-line growth of 7%. So... This uh, yeah. comes with what this is. I think this is from Netflix. I just, I guess, I wanted to compare that. Okay, for the quarter Q2, which is April to, to June, they reported seven point, let's call it seven billion dollars in ad sale, ad revenue just for YouTube, seven point seven billion dollars, and Netflix is reporting for the same quarter eight point two billion dollars in subscriber revenue almost i know they're in ad, ad advertising business now but that's the entire business so um this this is accompanied by the the dm to me saying it's the this story is very me. old okay this is yeah <laughs> this is from like last january or february just to call that out because okay. yeah sorry and not only do, do, do you dm me all the time but you're also searching through our dms and rereading well, i was learning i wanted to see what i had thought about youtube prior to see if there was a thesis or not to okay. look at google yeah so I will now read your words and take credit. Uh, it, it's the story of cable, subsidized by wireless carriers, but costs go up to the point of attrition and cheaper alternatives take its place. YouTube has the subsidized nature while also being the cheapest alternative while also spending the least on customer acquisition. Capitalism at its finest. Best product, market fit wins. Uh, the product, platform for video consumption, free. Distribution, free. And advertising, free. Market, the entire world and anyone with internet fit advertisers reach targeted audience and users get free content of their choosing. Um, so what, what was the point you're trying to make here? This was during my kick in early 2022 when I was just like, throw all the streamers in the garbage. They're all going to lose tons of money. And I don't know who's going to win except for YouTube, because to me, YouTube has the least barrier. Like what I said, least barriers of entry, least barriers of resistance. It's pretty accessible to anyone with internet, my my old parents who still pay for HBO. My father watches YouTube, right? Like everybody, I, anyone I know can access YouTube. And YouTube has all the content in the world that's just not made for TV. You can look at any documentary. You can watch any kind of topic. You can find something on YouTube. So it has this endless list of interests and hobbies and topics and how-tos and teach-yourself things and education. And, and Nielsen tells about their gauge, don't it, that they publish every month that that YouTube is now taking up more time. It's basically more watched. People are spending more time on YouTube on their television. This doesn't include any mobile devices. They're spending more time on their television with YouTube than any streaming service. So if I go back to when I had that initial, those thoughts to you, and I look at what's emerging now um, without saying I was right, it looks like the the thesis is playing out where YouTube is going to continue to gain uh, watch share. And you've seen the more um, direct podcasts producing videos to correspond with that. Um, that's become something big over the last year plus, um, not just this channel, but other channels as well. Uh, to me, it's endless. And YouTube will continue to consume more and more eyeballs, especially as it becomes more easily watched on devices like TVs, not just mobile or tablets. Um, yeah. And this is something that has grown. So I went back and I think my sources are telling me that we are even on YouTube right now. And so if you look at, this is two years ago, June, June, 2021, they accounted for 6% of the donut 
Netflix accounted for 7%. And if you jump a year forward to June 2022, so one year ago, they were about 7% of the donut. Netflix was about 8%. And now they have surpassed Netflix and are now 9% of the donut. And Netflix is 8%. This is of all, all watch time. And you can think about it in terms of timeliness. Netflix will take how long to produce a documentary covering a scandal or a story from three years ago, and YouTube will have a docu-series on it by somebody producing just as good content, but do it yourself or through an independent creator posted within hours. And if I want to watch something about the Silicon Valley Bank and I want to understand what happened, 30 minutes, short episode of you know really slick produced information – I can do so on YouTube and I have to wait how long till the dramatized series version of this. Um, to me, it's just an immediacy. It's going to keep this, this trend I think will continue and YouTube eventually wins. Um, and at that point, I, I think YouTube becomes the breeding ground for future content creators for streamers actually, because there is some fantastic work on YouTube that could otherwise serve as television shows. Um, I know it's not everybody's cup of tea, but Barstool Sports will produce reality shows that'll do 100,000, 200,000 viewers. And we know from looking at ratings, sometimes that ranks in the top 25, 30. Now you're What's, talking about YouTube views here. About YouTube views. But Glo- globally, which a view is like a representation if it's legitimate, which fair. most of it I believe is legitimate. But we're talking about like a 30 second watch. It represents a captive that's a audience that's watching episode one, two, three, four, five of a yeah. series. So it looks like there's repeat. Um, and. and so what stops that? What stops a network from just lifting the? Okay, produce this for us on our streaming platform. It's probably cheaper, and it probably rates because there is some factor to this where it's just on cable, it'll rate or something along those lines. Again, weird example. Not everyone's cup of tea with barstool sports, but they're doing reality shows on YouTube that are just as good as any reality shows you can watch on any of the, you know, infinite number of cable stations producing these. Yeah, so I just wanted to think through. Netflix is still making more money than YouTube is, and both we're talking about globally here. Mm-hmm. Um, again, eight point two million billion dollars in the quarter for Netflix versus seven point seven for YouTube. And how is that happening? Even though the, the donut charts that we were looking at is U.S. only, um, but that's we have to think globally. Then YouTube is blowing away Netflix for watch time. I don't think there's anybody who's really, you know, with any reliability getting that data. But because, you know, obviously subscription, uh, is is this, I guess we'll just read my, this, my old DM that, that uh, you you pulled up for me where I said it's incremental revenue for many, including WWE, AEW, me, I guess I meant WrestleNomics. It's almost all ad supported for now though. Right. I guess we're talking about YouTube. So the ARPU, the average revenue per user how much money you get out of each customer is low versus say cable or Netflix, which are subscribers supported and therefore higher ARPU. I think it's, I think that's reflective of the kind of content that's on either platform. YouTube has such massive watch time that it's ad revenue generated from that exceeds Netflix's subscription revenue. I think we were talking at a time where this did happen where advertising revenue globally uh, did exceed Netflix's global subscription revenue. And and this Uh, was pre Netflix going into the ad model. Right. Uh, and YouTube's U.S. watch time is less than that of Netflix, which was true at the time. <laughs> uh, maybe a sign that Netflix has a lot of room for growth to push subscription fees up, charge people more. It's my fault. And maybe there's a lot of room for growth for, to sell subscriptions to YouTube without ads, YouTube premium and other benefits. 
Uh, you are a YouTube premium subscriber, aren't you? I've been for a long time. I've just liked the, I've liked it for music. So that way it doesn't. I, I was, I let it run out. They gave me a message saying they're going to increase the, the fee. Mm-hmm. And I must have subscribed through iOS and it's more expensive because Apple gets, gets a bite. Yes. Um, so I just, it was kind of an ordeal to cancel, but there's, they told me that if you, if you cancel and resubscribe on the browser and just give us all mm-hmm. the money, then it's lower. Um, so I canceled and then I haven't re-upped yet. Um, and I'm, so I'm currently no longer a YouTube premium subscriber. So I am seeing the ads. If you have any questions about what the experience, what the customer experience is like with the ads, I, I can. Would it, you. would it disrupt our conversation right now? Would an ad just pop up a randomly in our conversation? So, because I was watching, like, I was watching Rewind Raw, of course, mm-hmm. and, and Rewind Dynamite. And I don't think I was interrupted in any of those live viewings. Not but live. If you want, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, it's a great product. It probably is worth quite a bit of money outside of Google. It benefits again. I'll go back to what I said in that message a while ago. Like it's subsidized by Google. Um, this was almost an accidental product for Google. I don't think they ever acquired it thinking they'd turn this into a, uh, multi, multi billion dollar business, but it is clearly that. And, you know, volume works, right? Because for the low ARPU, they are getting volume. We've seen them probably increase rates for ads. Um, there's also the targeted ads. If you have a million and one hobbies on there for people to look through, you have a much better ability to kind of offer the advertiser direct to those consumers um, than just throwing something up on Netflix where maybe the content is not the exact fit, though the person on the other end is. Um, I think about that in the pet industry. If I'm looking for, if I'm looking at pet stuff on YouTube, we could advertise right to the pet owner, but if I want to advertise, yes, I can find out through maybe Netflix or other streamers through targeted ads who a pet owner is, but it's going to be showing up watching uh, Vanderpump Rules. I don't know that that has the same effect or same relevancy. So it's a great delivery for ad- advertisers. Okay, so this is an interesting conversation. How does this relate to the wrestling business? Like, so let's yeah. take this. WWE made one point three billion dollars last year. How much of that do you think was YouTube? I have an idea. I'm sure you know, but it was probably less than, it doesn't register. It would be immaterial. It would not even show up. How many millions? It's millions for sure. Uh, millions? Uh, I should know this. Is it 12 million? 16 million? At one point, Laura Martin, who's the Needham analyst, was talking to George Barrio. So it was this long ago. So this is like 2019 or something. So or older, early than the, older than the DMs. Right. And uh, <laughs> and and she said that they, that they thought that to be made 20 million or something like that. And you year. can look at social blade and you can get a vast range of what they estimate based on the views that they do over a year. So I think it's, you know, it's well over 20 million now, um, probably under 50 million. So a pretty small percentage of, mm-hmm. of their annual revenue. It's incremental. You can, for you, you can extrapolate onto that what AW makes. So a lot less. It's incremental for content producers right now. Um, probably benefits somebody more on the independent side as having a, a vehicle of which to reach an audience like yourself. And you've probably made incrementally more money through YouTube than if you had not used YouTube, but for a WWE, is it incrementally adding to their overall revenue pie? I don't know. For, for, not, it's for, not. for WrestleNomics and for a lot of creators like, yeah. like, like this, you know, I, the, the ad revenue is really small. Um, what makes a lot more money is, is the super chats from, from YouTube that blows away the ad revenue. 
Well, one, you're welcome, and also uh, <laughs> no, but also right. But that's but but that's the product, right? They're offering you that platform. They're offering you that ability to go do that, and then it's up to the creators to monetize how they wish. Um, I'm sure there's a lot that are you're probably driving Patreon subs through it too, right? It's a vehicle of advertising. It's a, it's a, it's a marketing, yeah, tool for sure. Yes. Whereas WWE probably at that scale does not need to rely on it as such, but I think the overall trend in capturing eyeballs, the competition for eyeballs, even sleep is competition. I think this is a hard one to ignore that that is where a lot of people are now consuming content and doing where people are. Yeah. It's where people are. Yeah. So you have to be there. Um, Okay. I said, we want to go about one hour. We have now hit the one hour mark and we've got uh, probably just one more thing to talk about here. Um, Ah, yes. Logan Paul. So this is not a a new story. This is something that's been happening since February at least, right? This is a, a lawsuit that's been filed against Logan Paul and, and and other other named defendants involving his um, crypto zoo game. So I'll read a portion of this uh, New York Post article. In the fall of 2021, Logan Paul announced Crypto Zoo, an animated NFT project reportedly inspired by Pokemon and marketed as a really fun game that makes you money. For just over $1,100, users would be able to hatch and breed, collect and trade exotic animal hybrids on the blockchain, according to Coinbase. The rarer the animal, the higher the daily yield of in-game currency, zoo tokens, earned. Uh, the initial 10,000 NFTs immediately sold out, but the game never materialized. To this day, no game actually exists. Investors were and still are furious. In January, Logan Paul, who is uh, worth a reported $245 million, unveiled a $1.5 million recovery plan to compensate displeased investors, saying he wanted to offer a rewards program for the players who were disappointed in the status of the game, as well as promising to finish the game one month later. Uh, in February, a number of investors filed a class action lawsuit against both CryptoZoo and Logan Paul, alleging that Paul and members of the CryptoZoo team stole millions of dollars from investors via a fraudulent venture named plaintiffs in the lawsuit declined to speak to the Post. Um... Let's see. I do. I, I know we have to get to one thing in particular here. Uh, Paul and others behind uh, with and others behind with CryptoZoo made the business decision to forego an expensive and time-consuming process to create a functional CryptoZoo game or support it, and instead deliberately undertook a scheme to defraud plaintiffs and other consumers. Uh, claimed the lawsuit. Uh, the suit might have never materialized without the work of Stephen Coffeezilla. Fin- Findicine? Am I saying his name right? Uh, Coffeezilla. Okay, a man who investigates online scams Mr. for a living. Mr. Coffeezilla. <laughs> uh, one of the worst effective individuals of, of this alleged scam uh, was an Australian uh, person who lost close to $335,000. Um, he would not allow his name to be used in the article for fear of retaliation. Uh, Coffeezilla estimates that tens of thousands of victims exist, and, uh, and then one person who worked on the game, an engineer, uh, says that Logan Paul owes him about a million dollars for his work. So, and I did look, this is a, 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 a lawsuit that you can find on court listener if you're interested. So, um, wh- wh- what did you want to say about this? This is not unique in, uh, for this time period with NFTs, rug pulls, all these scams, all these schemes. This is not unique for Logan Paul. This guy's been doing this for a long time. I like Logan Paul as the wrestler. I might tell my kids he's Will Ospreay one day. I think he's fantastic in ring. I think it is appalling that there is this story out there that he continues to show up on our screens each week. He continues to kind of run his grift through WWE as now what seems to be a more full-time performer, likely will be, because you can only run grifts in so many areas before you eventually have to default to wrestling to get your payday. (laughs) And 
and he's probably being protected by a group of people paying him money to perform because he has drawn a lot of eyeballs. Is this such a big story that it should be covered and look at the scandal? Uh, I would highly suggest looking at CoffeeZilla's YouTube page. He has a Patreon as well. Um, I have no affiliation with him other than I'm just a major fan of the work he does. It's some of the highest quality stuff. I've mentioned I watch stuff on YouTube. Some of the best quality stuff. There's a bunch of stories about a bunch of different uh, scandals. But Logan Paul is like known for this. And Logan Paul is presented and, and kind of celebrated now in a world of wrestling where he's a great in-ring talent. Look how fast he's learned. And if this was any other wrestler that pulled a scheme that robbed tens of thousands of people, whether it's a million dollars, whether it's more than that, I can't imagine it would go so unnoticed. Yeah, and I, 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 yeah. I did look and I, I don't know that there's any, any of the usual wrestling news aggregators have picked this story up, which is, you know, he's been been involved in an ongoing lawsuit since February over this. If you go back and watch the videos with CoffeeZilla, you will see he even takes on his persona as a heel in which he first says he's going to uh, go after CoffeeZilla, and then he retracts and wants to make nice with CoffeeZilla, and then watch that if if you're interested in this. CoffeeZilla, a YouTube creator. A YouTube creator, investigative journalist, um... I believe crowdfunded who has done some amazing, he's actually partly responsible for finally nailing Sam Bankman freed and FTX, which was a massive, massive story. Um, but that said, I bring this up because he is presented every week. He will be part of SummerSlam. He was part of the last PLE. He was part of the one before that. Um, and I just think it's worthwhile that consumers of pro wrestling understand who these people are. So not to fall for their scam when they eventually try to pull it on us, the audience of pro wrestling, because that will inevitably come. There are people that will say, I love that guy. He's doing so great. The prime energy, the prime. And they'll follow him right into the next scam. And this guy's done it every step of the way. And that says nothing about my adoration for how well he's taken to pro wrestling. And he's put on some great matches. Yeah, it's it's not something I was aware of until you told me about it. And you can it's. I mean, there's clearly other coverage of it, including the New York Post and other outlets, and the the lawsuit materials are public if you want to and read I them. I don't believe this is the first investigation related to financial things he's been involved in. He may be involved in some others. I He's got a history, and people are aware of it, but he's also drawn a lot of eyeballs, and I would also give him credit for some of the popularity of WWE lately. So it cuts both ways, um, but this is kind of what happens when you go into this world of influencers and start to turn them into real talents on your your for your for your product for your ip sure okay i think that'll that'll be all uh anything you want to add here i want to throw some tinfoil on and i want to talk about the espn sale i feel feel like when when you do this you should have an actual tinfoil hat that you put on graphics graphics department uh we need the graphics department to put that on my hat right now but um yeah why am i uh, bullish on endeavor because endeavor is a licensor of rights we've seen that with ufc we're going to see them their dream team with wwe um i think they continue to play a big influential role in that space and i think that they are a dark horse for espn i also think fanatics is a dark horse for ESPN. espn Yeah, so there's been stories coming out that Disney would look to spin off ESPN into some kind of its own direct-to-consumer company. Um, obviously, Brian Roberts uh, said that's that's not going to be them this morning. Brian Roberts is Comcast. 
Comcast CEO, right. yes. Right, 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 right. Um, was it Mark Shapiro at Endeavor said they were not in, not going to do anything with WWE? Not change their leverage position. Well, okay. Not change uh, their leverage position. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I think ESPN becomes a Hulu where it's owned by a bunch of different people. I think there's a lot of benefits to a Fanatics having that funnel to get to the and, consumers and just, with just products. Just to, to add information to this, the, yeah. uh, Alec, Alec Sherman from CNBC has reported that uh, possible that the leagues themselves may get a stake in 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 such a partnership if, if it happens. And the leagues themselves have some stake in Fanatics, which is why I think about Fanatics in that same realm. Um, and they're the ones doing the merchandise for WWE. They do it for a yes. lot of the sports leagues, right? The the jerseys and the trading cards and things like that. Um, and I think Endeavor is uniquely positioned as this licensor of rights, which they claim to that they are really good at, and they claim this dream team is going to make them even better. That in a world where they were to assume a part of ESPN to license out the existing deals, uh, the same way we're going to see Apple license out MLS. So this is just a continuous shift in sports, in sports rights, in the landscape. ESPN is obviously institutional. Um, the contracts and what they do with the rights if they spin ESPN out and there's different owners. But again, something about that, um, the connection there with Endeavor UFC is a big driver of ESPN plus business. Would Endeavor be interested in getting the funds directly to them instead of a middleman? There's a lot of interesting things you can do with it that I just started to kick around in my own brain. And ironically enough, WWE will be part of TKO, part of Endeavor, and somehow Vince will end up owning sports. So and ESPN ESPN's valued at have you seen I've, I've seen some valuation out there it's many billions right yeah the last EBITDA I had seen for them was a while back maybe a quarter to a couple of quarters four billion I, WWE is worth nine billion what do you value ESPN at um, you know what are market comps in terms of being a direct consumer network um, what are market comps in terms of being a streamer they probably have more valuable streaming properties than any just, of the just giving it a Google here I get. Bleacher Report, ESPN valued at $50 billion. $50 billion. So $4 billion EBITDA would be Reuters are 12, 13 roughly $40 billion. This is from back in September, though. So somewhere between 10 and 12x on the EBITDA, if that was really around $4 billion, which is what I had seen a while back, yeah. one of these longer dated articles from either the fall or the winter. And, and, and so to put that in context... As part of this merger, W has been valued at what nine billion. Um, their market cap is like eight billion right now. Yeah. UFC um, at twelve, I believe. Right. So, so we would be talking about if, if, if what you, you're, you're theorizing comes to fruition, you know, uh, just being a partner among many, many more because they're way smaller than ESPN would be. Yeah, I don't think they can. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that they will acquire the entire thing, but would they? have some ownerships the ownership stake in it particularly because of ufc's position in espn plus and being a real driver there um and, and disney is still on the leadership. table as a potential um w suitor if you if you, if you you know take uh andrew marchand's r- report uh fx is uh reportedly yeah. interested in bidding, bidding on w content which does make sense for you know, going back to the discussion around not being beholden to writers and actors, right? It gives FX or it would give Disney certainly another IP property to be able to push out there um, that isn't, you know, disrupted by any ongoing work stoppages. Um, So, I mean, it's a hedge there a little bit too, but I don't know how overly concerned they are with that at the moment. Okay. Um, I think that's all for today then. AW Dynamite rating coming out later probably. What's that? 
bunch of good topics. Yeah. Yeah. Anything you want to plug before we go here? I had nothing to plug. I'll plug your stuff. Hey, I enjoyed good. Jesse and John's conversation. Yes. Um, the I thought podcast. that was a very genuine conversation. Um, I've long time believed that it's been needed to ha- be had. Uh, I would encourage people to go check that out. Why do I think it's important to have that conversation? Because I think it's important to identify what's taken place in media and wrestling whether it be influencers, whether it be people who've used it as a business model, or whether it be actual, real, genuine coverage or analysis is what I think you guys do here. But I think that the more good actors there are in the space are drowned out by people throwing up headline clickbait stuff on Twitter, sparking conversation. And it is unfair to classify a lot of wrestling media as one when there are different aspects of it. But the conversation about what has actually happened with the press conferences and just the way people have navigated this business, this this um, adjacent industry that's popped up around wrestling, which is no different than any of these other niche hobbies or different streams of hobbies. Uh, same thing happens around movies is worthy. Um, so I give my hats off to them having a pretty good, honest, open conversation, um, which some of it I agreed and some of it I didn't agree with, but I like the conversation happening. Yeah. And, and that is on YouTube. That is on, uh, on your podcast feed. I think if you, if you search for gentlemen's wrestling podcast, or if not that it's on the voices of wrestling. Yeah. Feed. Um, so that, that's about all we'll have uh, dynamite. I'll, I'll be tweeting. I expect to be tweeting the, uh, the dynamite rating later this afternoon and, uh, and already on the Patreon. There's quarter hour reports. There's uh, I did TV rankings. If you're wondering where the, the T uh, where the wrestling shows are ranking, uh, we finally know thanks to spoiler TV posting weekly stuff. And I've calculated that out into daily rankings to be like to like with showbiz daily. Um, quarter hour stuff is there. We had a, a conversation about streaming and, and how wrestling may fit into streaming on Sunday for uh, subscribers for WrestleNomics Radio. And we'll be back again, as always, on Sunday, this coming Sunday with WrestleNomics Radio. So thanks, everybody, for listening and supporting. And uh, you don't you don't want to plug uh, GameStop stock or something before we go? No, 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 no. Okay. Um, although support your local retailers because they are the backbone of this economy. Okay. Thanks for listening.